We're wrapping up a teaching um, series, conversation we've been having for a little while on the topic of Sabbath. Wrapping that up today. It doesn't mean the um, conversation about Sabbath ends. It's actually the beginning of trying to do it. And uh, our hope is that this is going to become a, not just a theme to talk about, but a practice rhythm of life that in months from now we can look back and say, we are a Sabbathing church. We do that. A couple questions for you to start off um, because we've been, the, the central theme has been that Sabbath is for you. Sabbath is a gift to you. And uh, we've been looking at like the theology of Sabbath and practice of Sabbath and practical tips with Sabbath, but, but the underlying current is that it's, it's actually for you. It's not, it's, not, um, it's not just for God at your expense. It's a gift to you. It made me ask the question like, um, do you believe that your life would be better if you lived with more faith? Do you actually believe that your life would be better if you spent more time in communion with God? Do you believe that? Do you believe that your life would be better if you live more obedient to Jesus? And it's not, I'm not asking you to, to make you feel like there's a right answer. I'm actually asking, do you really believe that? Because we've got to ask ourselves, do I believe that following Jesus will make me a better husband? Better make you a better wife, maybe make you a better parent, a father or a mother? Do I believe that following Jesus will make me less anxious, that it will produce a life that is more at peace and kind of uh, steadier in its pace and um, produce more fruit, the fruit of the Spirit that is promised? Do I actually believe that? Do I believe that life with Jesus can and will help me overcome any obstacle that I'm facing, that I have faced, or that I may face in the future? Walk through any suffering, the past, or the present, and the future. Do I actually believe that? Because I know we said it, and I know you said it, and I know that you and I both think it's the right, the right answer is yes, and I know that you and I probably would say we want to believe that that's true. But I ask you because I ask myself, do I believe that? Do I, do I believe in it? Do I live as though it's true? Like I said, the past few weeks we've been reiterating over and over that the Sabbath is for you. And that's on the foundation that Jesus is for you. I don't know where you're at. I don't know what you're coming into this space with. But maybe you haven't heard that Jesus is actually for you. And Sabbath, his invitation to Sabbath and the gift of Sabbath is for you because the God of the universe revealed to us in the incarnation through Jesus Christ is actually for you. And all the things that he suggests for us are for our benefit. All the lifestyles that he, that he modeled for us, all the things that he taught us are actually for us. They're not against us. They're for us. I was driving back from Indiana this week. I was at a pastor's conference with a few pastors, and uh, <clears throat> we were new to each other. It was uh, a couple guys who are part of the district here in the, the Christian Missionary Alliance, which is the denomination that we're a part of. And uh, one of them was named John, and the other one's name was also John. Uh, was a Vietnamese pastor and a Chinese pastor of different churches in our, in our district. And, and so I was getting to know these Johns. I've, never met, I, I've met them, but I've not spent time with them. We don't know each other that well. So we were driving down to Indiana, it was about an eight and a half hour drive to Indianapolis, both ways, and we spent a lot of time talking to each other, and uh, yeah, from Indiana, just drove up from the same place, minutes away, anyway, 
one of the pastors, he, uh, he asked me, he was, we were asking each other good questions. One of, the asked, one of the questions he asked me, he said, what are the peaks of your ministry? Like, what are the peaks and valleys? What are the, like, what are the formative events, the formative experiences, the formative moments for you in ministry? And I remember being able to talk to him just about, um, you know, missions trip that I led and, and, and a youth, like some big youth events that were just wild and crazy and taught me a lot of stuff. I, I got to share with them that, that my wife and I were a part of a church planning team and got to help plant a church in a, in a town in the south of Caledon. We also got to live in a giant house and like host missionaries and missions teams and host like youth events there and do a whole bunch of like wild missionary stuff, ministry stuff there. I got to share all that really cool stuff with him. But then it got me thinking personally. And I don't know if you have this problem. This may be a unique problem with, with pastors or people in quote-unquote vocational ministry. But when people ask you that question, they are asking about your ministry experience. But a lot of times what we end up doing is we end up equating our spiritual life to our ministry life, our ministry experience. And the question actually made me start to ask myself, what are the moments in my life that have been formative for my faith that have nothing to do with what I was doing? I have nothing to do with the ministry I was serving. I have nothing to do with the event that I was hosting, the place that I took a team of people. Do I have answers to that question? It made me sit there and go, I, I don't really, I don't know what I would say. And so I sat on that for actually a little while. I want to tell you about a few of those things because there are answers to that. There are things that I can say in my own life have been really formative in my relationship with Jesus and have changed certain things about me and taught me things. I want to tell you some of these things and share some of them with you so that I hope that you can see it and relate for yourself the way that Jesus shows up to us in interesting moments. There's one time when I was in my mid-teens, I went on a uh, vacation with my brother to a place called Bonaire. Bonaire is uh, an island right next to Aruba in the Dutch Caribbean area right off the coast of Venezuela. It's known for its scuba diving. And so we went with my grandparents, and uh, we tried scuba diving for the first time. There was a moment when I was 30 or 40 feet down on this ledge, and the ledge just kind of dropped off like a cliff. And on my right-hand side, it was just deep, dark, scary abyss, right? Has anybody been scuba diving in this room? Raise your hand if you've been scuba diving. Yeah, and you know what that's like when you just like look out and you just see open water? It's like this weird sense of awe and reverence and fear that there's going to be a 30-foot great white shark that's coming out of there and it's going to eat me alive, right? Like, you feel that. I'll be honest. I'm a bit of a coward, so I'm, like, looking over my shoulder constantly for barracuda because I wasn't wanting to die that day. And that was on the right. On the left, there was, like, this, this wall of, like, stunning fish, just all sorts of different colored fish. There was one little trunk fish, and it's, like, shaped like a like a handbag kind of thing, the way it's shaped. So it's called a trunk fish. It's got, like, this flat bottom. And I remember just watching this trunk fish just swim around doing its own thing. And I'm like this far away from it, right? Like I'm just hovering above it. I'm like this apex predator hovering above it and it didn't even know I was there. It just didn't matter. It was just doing its own thing. And it was that, in that moment, um, I don't know what was going on in my life, but for, for, for whatever reason, that moment has always stuck with me. Uh, there's a picture for me of like me being the little trunk fish just doing my own thing constantly, not even paying attention to a God that's just hovering over me watching. I remember in that moment, it was a really formative spiritual moment for me. And it was just like a sense of faith. It was just like the sense of like, oh, like if there is a God, he is this apex predator. He is this ultimate of ultimate and uh, all-powerful being just kind of watching over me as I go about my daily things. And, and uh, I just remember it like spurred just this, this sense of uh, reverence and love. And I've always had that picture of God since then. 
In my late teens, I had a bedroom window where I could get out onto the roof. Any teenagers with a bedroom window where you can get easy access to the roof? Yeah. Have you been? This is not to teach you any tricks, but, um, but there were moments where, where, um, where sometimes we'd sneak out onto the roof and just chill up there, you know, it's kind of a fun place to be. I remember uh, uh, when I was in my late teens, I was going through a difficult season emotionally. There was a bunch of things that were going on, and uh, there was a lot of uncertainty about my life, where I was at with Jesus, where I was at with relationships, what I was going to do. And I remember one of those nights I just popped at the screen, walked up on the roof quietly enough so that my dad didn't wake up in the living room underneath because he was probably passed out with a TV show on in the background and normally could hear the thump, thump, thump. So I kind of trickled my way up to the top of the roof and I sat there. It was a perfectly clear night. I, like, as I think back to it, I, th- I think back to, like, it was, it was like this temperature where you don't even notice it's there. It wasn't too cal- cold. It wasn't too hot. You know that feeling where you just, like, you don't think about the temperature in the room? And uh, the sky was really clear. So it was about as clear of a sky as you can see in Mississauga, of course. Like, you don't see much, but it's, you know, something to look up to. And I just remember sitting there on the roof, like, looking up to the sky. I had a bunch of things to say to God. I was whining a bunch of stuff. I was yelling and probably swearing at God at the time. And, um, and I just remember, like, for the next 20 minutes, I don't even know how much time passed. It just felt like I just sat there in silence, like, looking up, just feeling like, yeah, with all this, if, if, if God is there, then everything's going to be okay. I remember coming down from the roof just feeling like it's going to be okay. It was a moment, you know? It was one of those moments where it's, your lack of control combined with some semblance of faith had a really big impact on me at that time. There was another time <coughs> when I was in Australia. I was at a leadership school there. I was at a leadership school at a church that was called Hillsong. You probably know the music and you sing the songs. The church is like massive, like, like tens of thousands of people all over the world now. At the time, it was all over Australia, this huge church. Uh, budgets in like the dozens and dozens and dozens of millions of dollars, right? This massive, massive church and had this record label and sold all this music, right? Like probably one of the most, if there's, a wel- if there's wealth in churches, probably had a, one of the you know, healthiest budgets of all churches in the world, like kind of thing. And I'm painting this picture for a reason. I was at the leadership school and I paid money to go to this leadership school. This is a really good trick that we're going to try here. We get students to pay us money to serve here and call it leadership development because that was their model, right? Paid money to get an education, and really I was setting up chairs for a year. And I was learning, you know, the Mr. Miyagi, wax on, wax off, right? It cost me a few thousand dollars to get that training there. But I remember, I say all this to say, like I remember like that was my experience, right? It wasn't all bad, but there was this... There was this moment, they do this every year there, it's this Sunday, where they build up towards the Sunday over like six weeks, and uh, I forget what they call it, what do they call it? They called it Heart for the House, and it was like a big giving Sunday. It was like, this is the day we're going to give on top of all of our regular tithes and offerings, and here's the seven projects we're working on, and their goal was, no kidding, like seven million dollars on that one day to come in on top of what the regular giving was, and I don't say that for shock value, that's how big this church was, Right? And so you're part of the church, and every week for six weeks, they're like saying, hey, what is God, are you praying about it? What does God want you to give? What does God want you to contribute? And naturally, as a student, I'd be like, well, nothing, right? Because <laughs> I have $400 in my bank account. I worked Fridays and Saturdays just to 
make enough to eat the next week. That was, and I paid you to set up your chairs, right? Like, this message is not for me, is what I thought. And it wasn't. Like, if I look back rationally, I'm like, it's not. This message is not for me. Um, I'm doing my part. You know, I'm, I'm serving, and I've already, like, it's, God doesn't want me to give everything I have here to this mega church, the richest of richest of richest churches, right? And then starve for a week, right? That's unreasonable. So, I kind of wrote it off, right? I didn't really have like a rhythm of giving at that point. I'd worked in a church and I had been part-time and I gave always, I always put more time in than I was paid for. If you, if you know young interns in ministry, that's, that's our tithe, right? And it's like we put in double the amount that we get paid for. And so I was working in and out of church, but I never really had any practice of giving. And it wasn't like a regular thing for me. And uh, I don't know if it was effective emotional manipulation. And I say this not to be cynical. I say this to say I don't know if it was that or if it was the Spirit of God. But I just felt moved to give what I had to this campaign. With every, all the reasonable things that I just expressed to you, all those in the back of my mind, I felt like God was like, no, this belongs to me, try it. It's one of those really, really weird moments, right? And uh, I haven't looked back on that with any regret. I remember worshiping in that moment after signing over all of the dollars in my bank account, knowing I got to eat this week. I'm going to be begging for ramen from my friends for the whole week, which I did effectively. I ended up picking up a couple extra shifts that week. They called me and said, hey, we need you for Tuesday and Wednesday. I thought, oh, that's an answer to prayer. Thank God for that. But, but I remember doing that. I remember after that act of what I perceived as faith, me trusting that it was the Spirit of God saying, this is an attachment that you have, you need to let go of it. I just remember feeling like so free. I was just scared. Um, but I felt so free. Like I felt like, you know those moments where you feel like you taste the kingdom of God? Right? It was one of those moments. It wasn't, wasn't because I received a lot. It was because I literally thought I was acting out of faith. And to this day, I don't look back on that cynically. Like, you, there's a cynical angle to it, potentially, but I don't, for my own life, look back on that cynically. Um, even though I'd be the first one to say, hey, like, let's not emotionally manipulate people to doing these things, especially poor college students, right? Like, I'm against that. But for me, it was a gift to me. It was a gift of faith, reckless abandon. A few years ago, a friend of mine got sick. Using uh, perfect health, mid-20s, his body developed a ferocious cancer, and it... Uh, we fought it for over a year. His body was failing him. He was doing everything in his power to fight this fight. And there was an evening where he was on the verge of traveling to the States in a last effort to fight this disease. And he had no control over it. The doctors in Canada had no control over it. There wasn't anything they could do. So I got invited to his basement where he and his family were. And we, uh, I was invited there to pray. And I never felt so helpless. I never felt so uncertain about my faith, about prayer, about what I could do. I asked my friend what we could be praying for, and he mustered up the energy to utter that he wanted peace no matter what the outcome was, and that he wanted to use his life either in life or in death, he wanted God to use it in his story to make an impact. And that's what we prayed. In a pure act of faith, it was like, this is all I got. We prayed for God to heal his body. 
laid hands on him, prayed for God to spare his life. We asked for peace that transcended all understanding. And it was a holy moment for me. Uh, it was a holy moment. My friend didn't make it back uh, from the treatment in Indiana. His body gave in about a week later. He went to be with the Lord. And as I was thinking about this, I was thinking, man, regardless of the outcome of that prayer, that moment was always going to be and still is with me, living as a, uh, was a holy moment, and it will forever. There's a taste of the kingdom of God. It was because of faith. It was because of, a, like, I don't have control over this kind of faith. It was a, I can't do anything in this moment kind of faith. It was a, I'm so small and powerless, and all that I think belongs to me doesn't. It was that kind of faith. It was an uncertain, confused, emotional, reckless, but hope-filled faith. And I wouldn't trade those moments for anything. Sorry. There it is. Things didn't work out the way I wanted to in all those moments, and I wouldn't trade the out. I would trade the outcome. I would trade the outcome. It's a weird thing with faith. I would trade the outcome every time over. I would trade a lot so that my friend's body would be healed and his presence could be here today with his family. I would trade a lot to uh, have had more money in Australia to go travel and see more of that part of the world while I was there. I couldn't do much while I was there. I would trade a lot of the outcomes of those situations uh, for a lot of things, but I wouldn't trade the moments for anything. Those moments are burned into my into my memory. They're identity-forming moments of faith. They're a taste of the kingdom of God, I believe. And they're like little shots of trust that no matter what, everything's going to be okay. They, and there's many others, as I started thinking about it, they're moments where I felt, I think I felt the experience of what Jesus and the New Testament authors refer to as eternal life. If you read the New Testament, you hear that quite a few of them, including Jesus, refer to eternal life, and he's not necessarily referring to life after you die. It includes that, but it's actually life lived today with him. Life to the full is the language some of the New Testament writers. And N.T. Wright, he calls this peeking through the veil between heaven and earth. Saying, you know those like few moments in your life you can look back on? It's almost like you got a little bit of exposure to the kingdom of God, to heaven. Peek through that curtain just for a moment. You know, he has this beautiful idea that heaven is not this far off place, you know, above the clouds, but it's actually like, it's like there's a thin veil between us and heaven right now, and, and sometimes you get these moments where you get to see through it just slightly for a moment. It's a beautiful picture. But the common thread with all of those experiences was feeling a lack of control, having a deep trust and belief in God's real presence, and some faithful obedience. That was the common denominator in all those. And I wanted to share those things with you because I think God's inviting us into spaces, more spaces and times, He's inviting us into, um, into his presence through spiritual practices and disciplines where we can be intentional about setting up the kinds of spaces where we can experience those tastes of the kingdom. I really believe that that's the invitation to us through the practices. And that was the invitation in Sabbath. And we'll come back to that. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. If you have a Bible, you can open it to that. Or if you have a device and you like turning there. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We're just going to look at this this morning a little bit. This is the Apostle Paul. (coughs) 
Just a couple notes on eternal life and Paul's understanding, a New Testament understanding of eternal life here this morning. Because I think that's the crux of it. I think that's the outcome of Sabbath. I think that is the goal of Sabbath, is to live into, to taste, to experience the kingdom of God, eternal life and life to the full, now as it will be forever in heaven. At the beginning of this section of teaching, Paul, he kind of emphasizes the treasure that it is. And I wanted to highlight that. They see the kingdom of God, they see the eternal life as a gift that is to be treasured. He says, for what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, for it's God who said, let light shine out of darkness. He made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay, or in clay jars, so that the extraordinary power belongs to God, and it does not come from uh, us. Made me ask the question reading this this week, it made me ask the question, do I regard the knowledge of the gospel, my awareness of the kingdom, my awareness of the person of Jesus and the life of Jesus, and all that means for me, do I regard that as a treasure that I hold on to? Do I treat it like a treasure that I'm responsible to steward, to care for, Paul's understanding also of the eternal kingdom of God, you can see here, if you read this in the text, is it's not something to be had later. It's actually something to possess currently and forevermore, we'll see. And so it's an important note to think about the eternal life as something actually that is not just a future hope, but it's a present reality that we can live into. It's a present reality that we can experience. It's a present reality that we can actually be a part of here and now today, even as we anticipate into the future. It transforms our perspective when we live life to life to the full in eternal life. It transforms our um, priorities. We start to prioritizing spiritual riches over God or worldly possessions. We start to see things through a new light. We get a new lens that's put on. And it shifts our priorities, it shifts our desires, and it ultimately shifts our life in a good direction. And that's what Sabbath was. Sabbath was an opportunity to taste eternal life in the kingdom of God, and it is that for here and now. It's a treasure that we possess. The second thing that I noticed in reading this text is, is the paradox of eternal life. And you notice that even with some of the stories I was telling you earlier. Uh, eternal life is a paradox. It's paradoxical. Sometimes people think of eternal life as, um, and life to the full that Jesus and, new, and the New Testament authors describe as something separate from the life that we live today, something that's totally distinct and different, as if a future moment where everything is perfectly taken care of, and, it's, and we're not there yet, so we're not there at all. And that's actually not the New Testament view of eternal life. The New Testament view and understanding of eternal life is something that is paradoxical. Paul says it here in, in chapter, um, chapter 4, verse 8. He goes like this. He says, we're experiencing trouble on every side, but we're not crushed. He says, we're perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. He says that we're persecuted, but not abandoned. We're knocked down, but not destroyed. We're always carrying around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be visible in our body. Keeps going and says, we are experiencing, oh, for we who are alive, are constantly being handed over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be made visible in our mortal bodies. As a result, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. So eternal life, what it does is actually brings us 
hope in the midst of despair. It brings us uh, a new frame to see the sufferings and the trials and the pain that we're dealing with. It's not something that is unattainable, unreachable, that's far off in the future. It's something that actually helps frame the sufferings, the trials, the tribulations. And its purpose is to refine our faith, display God's power within us. Ultimately, it leads to eternal glory. You know I couldn't go this Sunday without referencing the Toronto Maple Leafs. This is a good example. This is a good example, right? 19 years of like built up angst and frustration, 19 years of pain, six years straight of a first round exit, many of those years where we were favored, losing to Boston over and over and over again. Like Boston doesn't need to win anything else and they still do when they play us. And so the win last night, and that's something that's funny, if you talk to a Tampa Bay fan, they won last. They won the series. It's whatever, right? We've won the last two out of the three years. We've been in the finals three the last three years. Like, who cares, right? It's a first round win, but for us, this is glory, right? Like, this is a moment. This is this is all consuming. We just won one playoff round, and what it was is it actually overcame years and years and years of failure, of angst, of misery. It's a good picture for eternal glory, right? Like things are glorious only in contrast to the pain and the suffering, right? Like if, if the glory is the norm, there's no contrast. So you actually don't usually get it. In the same way that we don't understand our privilege here in the West because it's the norm. We only experience it when we experience it in contrast to what others have to live with, right? And the same is true with the kingdom of God. Eternal life is a gift to you only when you see it in contrast with the pain and the suffering and the trials and the tribulation. And it's only a means of healing from that. It's only a, an opportunity to overcome those things. It doesn't get rid of them. It reframes them and it heals us from them. So that's Paul's understanding of eternal life. First, it's a treasure to be valued and to be stewarded. Second, it's, a, it's paradoxical. The suffering is part of it. Right? The suffering is to anticipate a perfect eternal future without it, but in the moment, it actually makes those moments, those tastes, those little kind of bites of the kingdom, those peering through the veil, the thin veil, makes them so much more glorious. And it should help us anticipate what the future glory will be like. And the third aspect of Paul's understanding of eternal life is it was an eternal perspective, i.e. life and life forever. In uh, verse 16, Paul goes on to say, Therefore we do not despair, but even in our physical body, as it's wearing away, and the assumption is continually wearing away, because we all of our physical bodies continually wear away unto death, right? So that's the picture. Even though it's continually wearing away, and it will ultimately lead to physical, bodily death. He says, our inner person's being renewed day by day. For our momentary light suffering is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Because we are not looking for what we can, or what can be seen, but at what cannot be seen. For what can be seen is temporary, but what cannot be seen is eternal. It's the idea there of faith. Living into what you cannot quite see yet. 
choosing to live today the redemption story in the midst and the presence of the pain and the suffering and the brokenness. It's, it's choosing to live in the unseen, not the experience. It's to reframe, to see differently, to hope for a future where the current is actually made new, is made better, including you. That's, that's Paul's understanding of eternal life, and that's what a New Testament theology of eternal life is. So why do we talk about this on the day that we're wrapping up Sabbath? Well, what we've said is that Sabbath is for you. Sabbath is for you. Sabbath is a gift to you. And what we've said for quite a few months is that Sabbath is a set-apart time where you live in the unseen, would be the language based on this text. You choose to live today what life is supposed to be like then. You choose to set aside a day where you actually are spending time with God, worshiping God, delighting in all things, regardless of how the last six days went, the pain and the suffering that this world kind of throws at us. It's a chance to choose to live into eternity now. And it puts us in this position, in this posture of maybe being open to God, being able to see through that thin veil. The Sabbath is to say that I'm going to resist the world's rhythms, routines, and expectations, deceitful ideas, and set aside a day where I can live out the eternal future in the present. The Sabbath is essentially saying that I believe that the gospel of Jesus is true. I believe in the promises and the life of Jesus. I believe that the more that I slow down and refocus on Jesus and reorient my mind and my heart in his direction and live obedient to his ways, the better my life will be. Sabbath is saying that. Sabbath is saying bodily, it's living, that I understand the treasure that this knowledge is and that I'll steward it properly. Sabbath is saying I understand my mandate to make disciples in Matthew 28 is first and foremost an invitation to be a disciple. Sabbath is saying that I understand um, that my money is not my own, that my time is not my own, that my home is not my own, that my family is not my own, that my calendar is not my own, like Rachel was kind of praying this morning. Sabbath is saying I actually understand that. Sabbath is saying that I trust in the promises of eternal life and I'll set aside a day to focus my time, my energy, my mind on it. And Sabbath is saying that not only do I believe in my head that the gospel is true, but I trust in the value for my life today. Enough to say no to everything else in order to do it. That's what Sabbath is. It's an invitation to live into eternal life. Life and life to the full. So the question is, what are we going to do about it? What do we do about it? What do disciples of Jesus do to grow in their discipleship? And how can we help one another in this journey? That's a good question. That's what we've been addressing for the last quite a few months, and we're going to continue to address. Some of you may be asking the question, where do you even start with this? You're assuming I believe this or think this, but I'm not even there yet. Maybe my question for you is, what is it looking like to clarify your faith? To understand it. it might be worth pursuing. I want to continue to grow in my understanding of eternal life and the kingdom of God and the ways of Jesus to experience his presence. And one of the ways I can do that is by Sabbathing. Sincere attempt at Sabbath. Another way to do that is to grow in prayer. I don't know about you, but I think if we took a survey, 99.9% of people in this room would say, I don't pray as much as I would like to, and I wish I had a better experience in prayer. And the one person is who... We're going to spend the next few months here at Southside talking about prayer. And it's going to be the same idea. Prayer is something that we can learn about. 
but it's actually something we practice to get good at, to experience God's presence in. As a reminder at Southside, where we're heading as a church is in the direction of practicing the ways of Jesus. And this is like years of practice. This is where we're heading as a church. We're interested in interesting things and things to talk about and ideas. But at the end of the day, what we've learned and experienced in the church, at least I've learned and experienced in my life working in the church, is that ideas don't change me. Practices and rhythms and lifestyles ultimately form me. Choices to live a certain way, to get good at something. And we as a church believe we need to start spending time with Jesus again, abiding in Christ through the spiritual disciplines. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to start praying together more. We're going to learn more about prayer and learn how to do it in our communities and as a church over the next quite a few months. months. And I invite you into that journey, into that experience together. I want to leave us this morning. I'm like sweating buckets because I was crying and I got nervous and all that. So just in case you're worried about me. I want to leave this this morning just with a reading. Something that struck my attention recently. Especially this week. Is that every generation, the, the, the great commission that was given to the disciples is actually a great commission for every generation. There's a lot of stuff in the New Testament that you read isn't written to you. It's written for you, but it's not to you. And so sometimes when you read it, it may not be something you're supposed to do. Maybe something you can learn from. But the Great Commission is. The Great Commission is something that I think is for every generation. It's been carried forth by every generation. And we're here today in this room because people were carrying it forth 100 years ago. And it will continue to be here in Milton if we carry forth over the next 100 years. It's something that stuck out to me in thinking about how we're leading the church in the direction of discipleship. And then it drew me to this text in uh, Timothy. Timothy was a, uh, was a young mentee of the Apostle Paul. So he wrote this to the Apostle Paul. This is Pastor Eugene Peterson's rendering of the text. It says this. But you, Timothy, man of God, run for your life from all this. And I want you to hear this as um, something if Paul was in the room, he'd say to you. But you, Michael, but you... Jennifer, but you, Carrie, run for your life from all this. All the stuff he states before, you can go read it. He says, pursue a righteous life, a life of wonder, faith, love, steadfastness, courtesy. He says, run hard and fast in the faith. Seize the eternal life, the life that you were called to. The life you so fervently embraced in the presence of so many witnesses. He goes on to say, I'm charging you before the life-giving God and before Christ, who took his stand before Pontius Pilate and didn't give an inch. Keep this command to the letter and don't slack off. Our master, Jesus Christ, is on his way. He'll show up right on time, his arrival guaranteed by the blessed and undisputed ruler, high king, high God. He's the only one death can't touch. His light's so bright no one can get close. He's never been seen by human eyes. Human eyes can't... Um, can't take him in, honor to him, and eternal rule. Oh, yes. He continues to go on and say, Tell those whose world's wealth, sorry, tell those rich in this world's wealth to quit being so full of themselves and so obsessed with money, which is here today and gone tomorrow. 
Tell them to go after God who piles on all the riches we could ever imagine and we could ever manage. To do good, to be rich in helping others, to be extravagantly generous. If they do that, they'll build a treasury that will last, gaining life that is truly life. It goes on to say, And oh, my dear Timothy, guard the treasure you are given. Guard it with your life. Avoid the talk show religion and the practice confusion of the so-called experts. People caught up in a lot of talk can miss the whole point of faith. The invitation is to see... um, the invitation is to see yourself in the story. If you close your eyes with me just for a second. The invitation with Sabbath is to see the Sabbath as something that is for you. And as a means to experiencing eternal life and life to the full. That life in Christ is not a burdensome life, but is a life that is free. It's free to live in accordance with our calling. It's free, it frees us from the attachment of things and people and circumstances. It frees us from the cycle of our community, of our culture, the economic cycle, the speed and the pace of life in which we feel forced to live by. It frees us from the anxiety of worrying about all these other things that don't really need to be worried about. That's what it invites us into. It's an, it's an inv- invitation to be free. And then, then Sabbath is an invitation to actually live that, embody that, and refocus our mind and our attention on that. That's what church is. That's why we celebrate every week. That's why we come back once a week to do that. So Lord Jesus, I'm asking you to refocus my heart, to refocus my energy, my time, my efforts on the things that are most important, the things that are unseen, the treasures in life, eternal life. I pray that you help me and this community store the gift of grace that comes to the form of your gospel story. I pray that we store it in jars of clay and we protect it and we steward it for generations to come. Your spirit helps us with that, guides us in that, leads us in that. Lord, I'm also asking for... um, for, for um, just a heart of worship in this room. A desire to be discipled, an awareness and a clarity by your spirit of where we're at in our discipleship journey and all that you have ahead of us because you have so much for every single one of us ahead of us. I just pray that these moments and moments coming from here can actually be a taste of the kingdom. That there's some people here today who, um, who haven't had that kind of taste in a long time. And they're desperate just to peer through the thin veil. To see your goodness, to see your glory, to see your love. Just in a small momentary way, through faith, amidst a difficult circumstance. I pray for that this week, for this community. I pray for a spirit of prayer going from here, Lord. I'm excited, I'm eager to talk about it, I'm also nervous about it, Lord. I pray that your spirit leads us and guides us into what prayer looks like for us here and now, what honors you, what kind of time we can give towards it, start making us aware of spaces in which we can actually live into it. I pray that your spirit starts to go forth already before we even start that conversation. And ultimately, Lord, all these things we believe, if we're living this way, we're being formed, we are being made new, we believe, Lord, that the community around us is going to take notice, they're going to see
They're going to experience the taste of the kingdom of God through us experiencing the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God will come here to Milton as it is in heaven. Help us be obedient to what you've called us in so that that can be the fruit of our life here in our time in Milton. Thank you, Jesus, for all that you give us and for this worshiping community. In the song that we're about to sing, we sing it in your name as our King and as our Lord and as our Savior who deserves all of us. Amen.